0: so, that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hey, Moro, it's great to have you on the show.
1: It's my pleasure
0: to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, you've got a quite an interesting career, so I thought, let's get straight into it. Maybe tell us and the audience how you've arrived as someone who's leading design. It's not a traditional career part, so what brought you here?
1: Well, I did study design, yeah. but you usually when you get a degree on design then you end up doing uh, beautiful styling on products yes Uh, you work in the world of fashion consumer electronics and and a variety of different industries that see the aesthetic value of their product as one of the main competitive advantages in, in 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 those categories and instead i ended up working as a designer, as a design leader in industries like the tech industry of 3M or uh, the food and beverage industry of PepsiCo. and It's been pretty unusual. Uh, One of the reasons I am where I am today is probably that I happened to arrive in these companies and I started to uh, ask myself, how can I leverage what I learned at school, my background, what I am good at doing? to add value to these organizations, these corporations, no matter what they were specifically asking me to do. And so it never happened in my life, in PepsiCo, in 3M, in Philips, where I was working before, when I created my own agency, that I received a job description and I actually did what they were asking me to do. I delivered on what they were expecting me to do, but yes. then I always figure out what else do they really need from me. What can I offer? What can I bring to the table to really change the game here, to really add value to this company, to do it in a sustainable time over time in a consistent way. And that's really one of the reasons why I'm here today. We can talk more about this, but it's really what drove me uh, you know, in this journey from the very beginning.
0: So your, your purpose in your career was how do you add value and the tool was designed. Is that a good way of saying it?
1: Yes. And even before that, my purpose in life was how do I touch the life of people out there? And somehow I add value to them. So the value we talk about is not economic value, business value for these companies. It's just an output is something important. Else you're not going to be able to have a platform in these companies. But what really drove me from the very beginning was this dream that started as a child of somehow building a form of legacy. I call it today legacy. Obviously, back then, I was not calling it in that way. The idea back then was, I want to do something that people will remember, even when I'm gone. And back then, as a child, I had two passions. One was the world of literature and philosophy. I loved to write and to read, and I wanted to be an author. And the other passion was the world of art. And so it was, for me, my me, my icons were the famous artists from the past from the renaissance from you know the yeah. history of art and the famous writers that are not there with us anymore They're, but the power of their ideas the legacy is still with us and is still inspiring and influencing any you know many many people out there and back then, he was inspiring, influencing me as a kid. So, without even realizing, I started to think and behave and work to somehow, in a way or the other, depending on where I was going, find a way to build that kind of legacy. Today at 47, after psychanalyzing myself for years and years and years and trying to understand what really drives me, I understand that the kind of instinct that many people have is nothing else than a way for people to defeat death, to become immortal, you know, to transcend yourself. Maslow in his pyramid will decodify that at the top of his pyramid and actually he identified the kind of need Later on in his life, it's not a coincidence, the new version, the latest version of the Maslow Pyramid has this dimension at the very top, some, doing something that is much bigger than you. Well, why? Because by creating something, we can call it legacy, we can call it a memory, something that stays after you're gone, you are essentially feeding life. And by the way, it could be something big, it could be memorable, you could invent the automobile, are Henry Ford, or it could be you know, just a series of acts of kindness that you leave behind and people will remind you as that kind person that somehow helps so many people around them in your community, in your neighborhood, in, you know, your close circle of friends. It doesn't need to be something that changes the world, but it needs to be something that somehow adds value in some form of way. And so when you ask me what drove you, is the idea of creating the kind of, value for humanity in a way or the other and therefore the love and the passion connected to that and there is a you know in the beautiful book emotional intelligence goldman uh, many years ago uh, once again defined the power of love and passion in what you do talking about uh, a research that was done in the united states between people that are really, really talented in what they do could be, you know, playing the violin or mathematics or sport, any kind of things. You know, you have these people, that are all very talented. The one that really love what they're doing. They love to play tennis. They love to play piano. They love what they're doing. They're going to succeed and perform better in life for a simple reason, because they will have, that passion that will make them practice and spend a lot of time and go the extra mile without feeling the pain of doing it. Looking at that as something fun to do. And this is what I did all my life. I My job has never been a job for me. I mean, still today I'm like, yeah. wow, you know, they're paying me for doing this. I would do <laughs> it for free now. Yeah. Let's don't say it too loud to my company, but <laughs> but, but it's true. I mean, like I, my job is my passion. So, do the people out there, what is your passion? What do you love to do? Uh, try to figure that out, and then put your effort to do it in your life and drive it, and 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 keep doing it until you stop loving what you do. When you stop loving what you do, when you get up in the morning, you look at yourself in the mirror, you're like, oh, I, you know, another painful day, and at wo- yeah. day at work, it's time probably to change and repurpose yourself and find again what you really, really love. In my case, it was the idea of touching the life of people and create something valuable. Design happened to be the platform. And by the way, it's a wonderful platform to do something like this, because designers by definition, are in charge of taking something, changing it, evolving it, taking it from the status quo to a new, better condition. It could be a brand, it could be an existing product, or it could be even an invention of a new brand, of a new product, a new service, a new experience. But by definition, designers are thinkers and doers that create something that goes into the world and somehow creates some form of value for people and society.
0: I love that. There's two things that jumped out at me when you were saying this. One, it seems that your philosophy for design is is caring for the end user. The way you spoke about this, it shows me that you care about them. There was no talk about economics. There were no talks about the latest design materials, the latest trend. It's almost as if you care about them, you want them to have a good experience, and that's what you bring to it. The second thing you said, which I like, because... It sums up what I also think is that if you're doing what you believe is your life's work for your life's purpose, you'll do it even if nobody paid you. And second, you don't consider it work because this is what you want to do. You enjoy it and it just so happens you enjoy doing something that someone's going to give you money for. And the thing about where you said that the great people in their field, that is true. They enjoy what they are doing. They love it. What I've seen happens very often is that a lot of people want to replicate the success of immensely talented individuals, but they only look at the part where they put in the hard work. They don't consider the actual drive that the person has that's an innate competitive advantage. And what happens is they put in the the 10,000 hours or whatever is the new fad. They don't have the, the care, the love for what they're doing. At a certain point, they get to the age of 35, 40, they have a midlife crisis because they're doing something that's not their identity, and they move on. So I really loved how you explained that. Well, let me pose a question to you. Yeah. Everyone talks about design today. It is like strategies. It's probably the two most uttered words that I hear when I'm speaking to CEOs and CEO.s and so on. But many companies are really bad at design. Because if if you look at the products they put out, for example, every time I use a product, I always think to myself, has the CEO of this company actually used this product? And why did he approve it for sale if it's so bad, right? So it took me five minutes to open a jar of minced ginger this morning because the cap is so small, I can't get my fingers around it. I'm thinking to myself, which CEO approved this, right? So my question to you is, design is front and center, but... Design doesn't seem to have improved much.
1: Well, I, look, I think if we compare the situation today in the market with 20 years ago, there mm-hmm. will be many improvements. Mm-hmm. But I think uh, design is in a journey and it's not just I- inside these companies, big and yes. small. And it's not just design, it's the idea of human centricity that design represents. The human centricity and design are synonym for anybody deeply understanding what design is about and the examples that you just mentioned are example in of somebody that understands what design is yeah. it's not just the 3d product or the pretty packaging but it's the usability for instance of the product the satisfaction of the experience of opening the jar yeah. in an easy way in a comfortable way and Maybe, maybe even in a fun way, if we want to, yeah. <laughs> you know, add a touch that is totally unexpected. And that's what designers do. They think about the emotional part and they think about the more rational, functional component of everything you do with a product. I think it's a journey for one reason. Uh, for many years, these companies didn't need design. Yeah. And when they really needed it, they would go. To an external firm, and somebody they will buy, in some way, they will buy it. But in general, it was not necessary to win in the market. And why? Because you had a product, and the product was, you know, if he's successful, successful, if he's an established brand, the product was essentially having specific characteristics that were standard in the market. And if you are the market leader, for instance, well, your competitors will have similar characteristics and nobody mm-hmm. would bother about disrupting that balance, disrupting the status quo, because it will be dangerous for everybody. So all the competitors will compete with specific kind of characteristics of their products. And then there will be huge barrier to entry in that category through scale of production, manufacturing, um, distribution and communication so essentially a few years ago it was very difficult to decide and go and compete with pepsi with yeah. uh you know uh, lace or with any other big brand out there in food and beverage in uh, cleaning in uh, consumer electronics in any kind of category today instead is much easier for a variety of different reasons you know today Anybody can come up with an idea, get easy access to funding, either either through a proliferation of platforms online for crowdfunding. For instance, kickstarter.com, based in the United States, but there are a variety of others based around the world. Or because of the proliferation, once again, of investment funds that are hunting for the next idea, to be the next startup. We live in the age of the startup. The idea of building a startup today is much more plausible than it was 20 years ago. Actually, kids coming out of school don't dream anymore to join a big company and an established brand. They dream to build through their startup, the next big company and established brand. And so here we are, it's easier to get access to funding than in the past the cost of manufacturing of products in the vast majority of the categories, not all the categories, but the vast majority of the categories is going down. It's decreasing driven by globalization, global competition, and by new technologies. New technologies that are also allowing people to start productions of products in small run, in small quantities. And this is great when you need to start something new and you can't yes. produce, you know, huge quantities and start in the way. So is easier to get access to funding. The cost of producing is lower. And then you can go straight to your end user uh, to sell them stuff through the digital platform of e-commerce and to communicate your products through the digital platform of social media and similar kind of digital platform out there. So essentially all these areas were the areas where the companies in the past were building those barriers to entry. I was talking about earlier, made of scale. Today, Anybody can go and compete with these big companies. And so what is happening is that if you are a big company and you have an established brand, you know perfectly that there are millions, if not hundreds of millions of people out there looking at your product, looking at your brand and thinking, how can I take that down? And how do you do that? Well, you look at the way people, Interact with the product and the brand, and they try and you try to understand if there is any frustration in the experiences, any ar- unarticulated desire or need, and and is enough one area of frustration, one opportunity. You could have the perfect product, an amazing brand, a great service, but maybe your product is not sustainable enough, or is not healthy enough, is not personalized enough for me. That's exactly where the new company will come in. Think about what happened with Uber in the transportation industry. Think about what happened with Airbnb in hospitality industry. Uh, You know, there were conventions in the industry, in the market. Nobody was changing the system until somebody arrived, understood the frustration, understood the opportunity and leveraged new technologies to enter and offer something alternative and different. So long story short, all of these Is pushing big and small companies to do one thing create amazing products, services, experiences, and brands for people. We're entering what I like to define the age of excellence, a moment in time where either you create something extraordinary or sooner or later, people will do it for you. This is why design, design thinking are becoming buzzwords in this world because companies are understanding that for the first time in their history, they need to innovate. They need to do it at 360 degrees. They need to do it quickly with a pace that is and, and frequently, quickly and frequently. And so you need to bring in designers, but not just designers. Design thinking it is a culture that applies to any kind of community, to marketing, to R&D, to insights, to all the different functions. You need cross-functional teams of people, cross-functional teams of human beings, of people, of leaders that are creators, that understand how to create extraordinary solutions for people. And design is the driver of all of this. So we're not there yet though, because this is difficult. So design is a buzzword. There is a, there are, we saw, we witnessed a lot of improvement compared to the past in the products we see out there, but there is a long way to go. Because it's not as easy as to think, I'm going to redesign the lead of the jar. Yes. You need to redesign the culture of your entire company. And this is not easy. And there are companies that are doing more than others. I've been 10 years in PepsiCo, you know, the big chunk of my job is not designing products. Yeah, of course I have hundreds of designers that design products, but for those products to happen to exist. We are redesigning collectively the culture of the organization step-by-step step, year after year in design, in marketing, in R&D, in all the different functions with this human centricity at the center of everything. And you, you, you need to do it one product at a time with you know, multiple proof points showing the value of the new approach. And then the more you show the value, the more the company embraces it, the more you can amplify exponentially the creation of the kind of value, the impact of the kind of value in society.
0: As a CEO listening to us, how would he or she self-diagnose if the design philosophy in their firm is human-centered enough or at all? How would they go about assessing? That'd be the first question. And then once we discuss, how do they go about instilling this within the organization?
1: Look, on the first question, Um, It's pretty simple, but you need to have awareness about the need of doing something like this, right? So it's simple. Why? How? Well, you know, every time this applies to anything we do, to any person doesn't need to be an SEO and it applies to what we do at work and also what we do in in life. We, human beings, each of us, we have bias that are defined by our history, our background. And so when you want to avoid any kind of blind spots driven by your background, your history, your perspective, your biases eventually, what do you do? You try to change perspective. And so, what is the best way, the easiest way to change perspective? Well, talk with people that are different, and you have a different kind of perspective. Eventually, there are experts of something you are trying to understand, or in general, you know, when you don't you didn't identify yet the specific problem. Yes. Talk with people that are just simply different than you and help and help yourself through them changing their perspective and seeing things that eventually you didn't see because of uh, the biases that you have yes. and the background that you have. So in the case of the CEO, you know, trying to analyze if you have a good design approach. Well, I will ask people out there designers experts or business leader that leverage design a variety of different people that know how to drive human centricity to assess his company his products and not in a superficial way i mean sure. through a conversation by you know digging into the business model of the organization the culture of the company what they're trying to do but assessing you know and it could be as simple as a session of, you know, a conversation or a day together, or it could be by creating a steering committee of experts that get together uh, every quarter and review yeah. what the company is doing. Or ideally, and this is not happening yet, and for me, it's mind-blowing, have designers in your boards. You yeah. know, in your boards, you usually have, obviously, people with a finance background, a commercial background, eventually, you have a chart kind of persons but there are not really companies out there that have designers ambassadors of this human centricity in the board and so again there are multiple ways to do it but engage in the conversations with others with different kind of point of views that can help you understand if you have any kind of problem to answer the second part of your question how you build something like this well this has been you know what i I'm about to share with you has been actually the content of my conversation with the former CEO of PepsiCo Indra mm-hmm. Nui, the great Indra Nui, yes. when she interviewed me for the position um, in the company. And uh, You know, I entered the uh, room, the, her office in Purchase, New York, um, and I saw immediately on the table uh, <laughs> A book, essentially. There was a dossier on me, on my background, my projects, everything I did. And that's how Indra was working. She had always people that were putting together, you know, all the information she needed uh, about anything that she was doing. And so she knew everything about my projects and what I did in life and everything. Probably, I joke, she knew probably even more than me about myself. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) so here we are. And very quickly, we start with, with... we move from talking about designing products and brands, and we start to talk about designing culture and building a new culture of design and human centricity inside the organization and how to go doing that, how to do it. And so I share with you something that I was sharing already in conferences, you know, for years about what I did at 3M. I spent 10 years of my life, building design from scratch in this yeah. tech driven multinational corporation from Minnesota called 3M. And I essentially, the first few years, I was 27 when I started, were very were experimental. Let's put it this way. I was just following my instinct and try things. And then after a few years, some of those things were working. Some others were not. I started to look back. I started to look back because I was in charge of trying to build the culture for the future, reason number one. And so I needed to understand more or less what was working, what was not, so that I could invest in the best practices and really, you know, build my playbook. But I I was looking back also for another reason that could be also a practical advice for people. I was looking back because I've been always a communicator inside. I always love to... A story tell what I was doing. I always love to write about it, to go on stage in conferences and share what we were doing. Uh, it was interviews and articles and books. And yes. so, because of this passion of mine, I told you at the beginning of our conversation today that as a kid, I wanted to be a writer. So, in a way or the other, I was like, I'm going to anyway write and do things, you know, no matter what the professional journey I'm going to have. So. Because of this, when you need to storytell and share with the world something you're doing, you're forced to understand the common patterns, what is working, what is not, and transform all of this in something that is relevant to people, in a story that is engaging, that is meaningful to people. So, long story short, a little bit because of this, a little bit because of the role I had in these companies, I identified five different steps that I was going through and design was going through yes. in, in the creation of this culture inside the company. Now, these steps that, are about, that I'm about to share with you apply to anything. They don't need to apply just to design. Yes. They literally, literally apply to everything. So the first step is, what I call the step of denial, the first phase is denial. The company doesn't understand that they need a different approach to design or a different approach to anything, to finance, to anything. If you stay too long in denial, you risk to disappear. And this is what happened to companies like Kodak and Blockbuster when they are in denial of the fact that the world around them is radically changing and they should embrace that change. Usually though, there is always a CEO or a a business leader at the top of the company that sooner or later realize that you need to drive a change. Also because it's their role. I mean, there is an army of people often that do execute things. And the role of these people up there is to really think about the big picture, right? So sooner or later, somebody realize. and, And what do they do? Well, they try to inject the new approach inside the organization. So in the case of 3M, many years ago, Somebody at the top of the company decided to hire a kid that was 27, Italian, in Italy, in the periphery of the American empire, um, you know, company based in Minnesota in the Midwest of America, and they decided to hire this 27-year-old guy in Italy. Uh, to work as design coordinator just in one business out of the six of the company, the consumer business, just in Europe. So the the experiment that we're doing was one with very, very low risk. If I was failing, nobody would have even realized. 10 years later, PepsiCo took a step you know, with a higher level of risk because it was a much higher position and with much more visibility right away as chief design officer of the company. But obviously it was also a different time you know, for design 10 years later. But going back to 3M, here I am, I get hired, I get my luggage and I go to St. Paul, Minnesota to meet all the R&D leaders and the marketing leaders and I have, I have all this... Meetings where I pitch the idea of what design can do for the company, this human-centered approach to innovation, what it can do for the company. And the meetings go very well. Everybody loves what I'm talking about. Yeah. and is, I'm really excited. I'm like, wow, yes, it's working. So here I am. I go to the office of the, my executive uh, sponsor, the EVP of the consumer business, Dr. Monozari. And I, I tell more. It's great. Everybody gets it. It's gonna be much easier than what we're thinking. We're really gonna drive this change of culture in a in a in a smooth way. And then Mo, there was always a very, very serious man. He looks at me, you know, with a serious face, more serious than ever, and he's like, they are all lying to you. And like, no, Mo, no, 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 no. You are (laughs) not in the room. You know, I was there. I could feel, you know the vibe in the room. I know they were not lying. And inside myself, I was thinking, I have a very high EQ, emotional intelligence. I feel people. I know, Mo, you were not there. But Mo keeps staring at me very serious. And then he he goes again. I'm telling you that they are all lying to you. And then he explains what it means uh, with an analogy. He says, Mauro, think uh, about an art gallery. Imagine an art gallery and you are in this art gallery and you have a beautiful, beautiful piece of art in front of you. You love it deeply. You really, really, really love it. And you have the, your pockets full of money. You have a lot of money. What do you do? I guess you buy the piece of art, right? Well, Mauro, you and design are a piece of art in the 3M Art Gallery. And you're not the only one. There are many other pieces of art. And I know that all these people you met are buying other pieces of art. And they have plenty of money because me, Monozari, I am giving them the money per budget. So I know how much money they have. And I know they're investing those money, the money in the next HR initiative, in the next plants you know, to manufacture a new product. They're not investing in design. That was a major aha moment for me because all of a sudden, first of all, I realized he was completely right these people were lying to me and they were lying for a variety of different reasons. Maybe they were enjoying the moment with me, that hour of meeting with me, you know, my accent and I was exotic. (laughs) And I was bringing a little bit of life and fun, you know, in the, in the daily uh, working life. So maybe they were just enjoying that or maybe they didn't want to disappoint this young guy full of dreams and passion. And so they didn't want to tell me that they didn't really understood or believe in what I was uh, pitching them or maybe they totally didn't give a hack but they didn't want to go against somebody that had an executive sponsor like Dr. Nosari that was really pushing for design or maybe they gave me the weak, weak signals that they didn't really care about what I was talking about but we people we love the idea of being loved we don't like the idea that somebody may may not like what we're proposing them or yes. may not like us as human beings and so often we have blind spots even when we receive weak signals we cannot see them we don't read them so long story short for a variety of different reasons the reality is that you may face yourself this situation where you try to push a new approach to anything in your company I call this phase the phase of hidden rejection it's fundamental that when you try to create a new culture inside an organization you spot people that are with you and people that are against you that you understand that you may have, you may be in a phase of hidden rejection and why is it fundamental to understand it well because you may think you're getting traction you may go on for weeks or months, thinking that people are there with you. And when you realize that they are not, it may be too late. These companies are not patient. They want you to deliver stuff. If you realize after six months, nine months, it could be really a problem in your journey inside these organizations. So at that point, after the meeting we both, I developed a technique to identify what I call the co-conspirators, the people that are willing to bet on the new culture. And essentially, it's very simple. What I do after I pitch an idea, I ask the person in front of me to commit right away. I ask them what I call a sacrifice, a commitment. Yeah. Usually, I ask them money, resources, people. Yeah. The worst case scenario, I ask them to to have a public commitment at least to 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 in front of people say, yeah, yeah, I am with them i'm gonna invest in design but in some form of way you need to engage them and they need to expose themselves when you ask them to do something like this right away nine people out of ten will step off they will drop off they will be like oh yeah i really believe in what you're saying but you know what now i have other priorities let's talk about this in two months you know really we do something too but not now not now it's always not now and And when I say one out of 10 or nine out of 10 is not a number that I'm showing out there. You know, there are statistics out there. They show that the willingness of people to embrace new products, forget culture for a second, new products, the curve of of adoption of people towards new products uh, is is, as always the same uh, shape, the bell shape. At the beginning, there are very few people that are, you know the early adopters, the one that really is trying a new thing at the very beginning, usually they're two, three percent. The one that comes immediately after, that try things after at least somebody else tried them before them, they're around nine, ten percent. So, the summary of the two category of people that try things before anybody else are is around 12, 13 percent. Everybody else will follow. So you know that even when you try to build new culture, the early adopters and innovators, the one that try the new culture early on, are in average 12, 13%. That one person out of nine that I was mentioning earlier. If you're trying to push a new approach, a new culture, something that is different than the status quo, you find too many people with you, it means that something is wrong. It means that either they are lying to you or you're not pushing anything really yes. radically new. Now, once you understand this, you can move to the third phase. I call that phase the occasional leap of faith. Is when you find your co-conspirators and you start to work with them in building proof points and the characteristic of these proof points is that they need to happen as soon as possible they don't need to be perfect they need to be good enough to show some form of progress some form of some form of value to the organization so that the organization is like oh this thing oh is generating some value you know let's let's invest more in this and and essentially you know when i joined pepsico for instance i map all the co conspirators on and let's I put them in a vertical axis. And then yes. in the horizontal axis, I started to put all the projects where I could deliver value very quickly, what the low hanging fruits. Yeah. And then I, I identified those low hanging fruits that had the right co-conspirator, and I started to focus and prioritize on those projects. And so once you start to develop those projects and deliver. Other people will come and be like, wow, I love what you did in Pepsi. I want to do it in Montaigneux or in Lace. And I'm like, yes, let's do it. Give me the money. Commit. Sacrifice. And when they do, you start to build more proof points. When you start to have a critical mass of proof points, you are ready to move to the fourth phase. Is what I call the quest for confidence. Is when you're moving from startup mode. To scale up mode is when the company is like, wait a second, wow, there is a lot of value in this thing that we're experimenting with. Let's scale it up. Let's really extract as much value as possible out of it. The problem is when you start to scale it up, first of all, the risk start to be big and exponential and the exposure and everything. The second problem is that what you need to do to scale it up is that you need to start adding a layer of processes and tools and ways of working to make sure you can extract value in a consistent and reliable way out of those projects that were more, you know, the projects of pirates and pioneers. And so you need that. You need those processes and tools and you need people, breeds of people that know how to manage all of this. But you also need to be careful not to kill the initial passion and love and intuition and what drove those initial pro- projects. And this is what happens also when you acquire a company, for instance, and you try to yes. scale it up within an organization, you kill the culture of the company. So this is why I call this phase quest for confidence because it's yes about scaling it up, but you also need to do it with an emotional confidence and what you're doing is the right thing with emotional com- confidence that... No matter the risk that you are taking, and now the risk starts to become big because you're scaling it up, you need to keep going. And for this, you need a specific kind of culture and a specific kind of skills and expertise. If you succeed at that point, you have infused the new culture inside your organization, you move to what I call the holistic awareness. And that's when the new culture is printed in the DNA, in the genetic code of the company at that point.
0: I find this conversation very interesting because when I was first planning this discussion, I had made the assumption that we would talk a lot about design as a skill. But you speak about design as a culture, as a movement, as a philosophy, as a way of thinking. It's almost, it, it's almost as if you're going in and you're tweaking the DNA of the company, as opposed to layering on a skill on top of the company. Is that a good way of thinking about it?
1: absolutely you just summarize it all and and by the way it's not just you know an ambitious plan yes this is about survival (laughs) this is about survival of that design capability this is about survival of even the company in the long run Uh, and when i say survival what i mean is if in 3 or in PepsiCo I was just doing what the company at the beginning was expecting from me, so working on the design of the product, of the packaging. For instance, let's say in your example of the jar, somebody will tell me, well Mauro, you need to redesign the lid of the jar to make it more user-friendly. If I was just doing that, probably I wouldn't be where I am today. I would have lost my job both in 3M and in PepsiCo for one reason. Because I would have tried to design the jar and I would have come up with hopefully a great idea to redesign the lid, but the system would have killed that idea. Uh, because of cost reasons, because of manufacturability reasons, because consumer research will tell us that consumers don't like the yes. idea too much and they are so used and so familiar to what they use every day. Uh, or just because the company wanted to move faster and with lower kind of investments and they didn't really need to redesign that jar because all all other competitors were using the same kind of lead. So why to do it? Who cares? You know, we can extract as much profit as possible from what what we have already today. Why to change it? So for a variety of different reasons, sooner or later, they would have stopped me. Instead, when we talk about designing culture, it means that essentially I'm infusing in the consumer insights team, in the manufacturing team, in the HR team, measuring the performance of the business leaders, in the finance team, defining the algorithms of the company and where to invest and where to instead extract as much value as possible. You know, I would work with all these functions to infuse that idea of human centricity, to infuse the culture of creating something extraordinary for people out there, to infuse or explain the reasons why we need to do it. And you don't do it by the way, just by talking to people. It's not about yes. that. You do it by doing stuff. And so you do it by finding co-conspirators that think the same way as you, and making sure that you have some sponsor at the top of the company that empower you to do certain things, and they can protect you to do certain things. And, and then, Experimenting and then trying, you know, new things. And once you start to have those proof points I was talking about, then this company start to believe more and more about the culture you're trying to infuse. Another thing very important, you know, for all the people listening to us right now, the most important thing are the proof points in the initial phase yeah. it's the most important thing because if you come in the, in the company and you start to pitch human centricity and different ways of doing things and you just do that the company most of the time people will roll their eyes they will be like okay whatever you know when you're lucky they will listen to you but until you have something that prove what you're talking about nobody's gonna really listen to you so yeah. it's better you focus so much to build the value, to show the value as fast as possible through products, through some form of results in the market, showing, you know, the value you can bring to the company. Once you have that value, then you use that to talk about the culture. Then you say, you know what? To do that, you need that kind of culture. You need that kind of uh, approach. So, you know, Everything works in parallel. You need to start building the culture while you do the proof points. But once you have the proof points, you can double down on culture. So it's it, you need to leverage all the different levers and variables together in a strategic way.
0: Yeah, what you're saying makes perfect sense because if you think about it, let's stay with the example of a Pepsi bottle and a cap. For the cap to change, you've got to get the finance team to approve the change. You've got to get the engineers to be willing to shut down a part of a factory, re-engineer the design. You've got to get the marketing team on board. So unless all of those people believe in what you want them to do, they're not going to shut down their factories. The finance team is not going to approve a a 2% increase in their budget. The procurement team is not going to go out scouting new suppliers for a camp. I think a lot of people tend to forget that. The other one about a proof of concept or a proof point, have you found in your experience that when you're looking for that proof point, do you work with the sort of biggest division or do you work with the smallest division where there's less resistance? How do you pick that proof point? Because I think if you get the proof point wrong, everything else could fall. So, so what's, in your opinion, has worked best? Well,
1: this is a great question. For me, there are The first two variables that I mentioned also earlier is I need the right co-conspirator, one. Two, I need the right project where for a reason or the other, I have a very high probability of landing something quickly that is very visible. So the third variable, if you want, I'm adding here in the mix is visibility of what you do. If you do something too small, it may be not relevant to the
0: business.
1: And so not visible enough. If you do something too big, it may be too difficult to make it happen. So you you really need to find the right challenge. I'll give you two examples of the very first two proof points that I landed in in PepsiCo. The first one was big, a scale. Essentially... Pepsi had a very fragmented visual identity for the brand. You had different logos in different parts of the world and different kinds of packaging and therefore different assets. And all of this was not just bad for the brand because it didn't show up in a united way as a global brand, but was also very inefficient because you uh, needed to produce completely different assets in different parts of the world. Think about the inefficiency of something like this. No matter this, Pepsi was working very well in many regions of the world and therefore many people didn't want to change. I'm like, why would they change the logo, the can, the visual identity, if it's working well in my region? And so it was not easy because here you are, if you do a mistake in a specific region, you are talking about hundreds of millions of dollars here, You know, in a yeah. multi-million dollar kind of brand. And so that was not an easy one but it was a very necessary one. There was the president of Global Beverage back then, and then Indra, Brad Jakeman, and then Indra Nui, the CEO, they were really trying to drive that change, really sponsoring that change. And so the first thing I did, I started to talk one-on-one with all the different CEOs of the different regions, and the, the CMOs of the different regions. And they yes. started to try to understand if I could be able to convince them to do things in a different way. And long story short, the point is that I was able in a way or the other to convince them that the redesign made sense, that would drive quality and would drive also productivity. It was me together with a variety of other people inside the organization that somehow were able to drive that change. That was big, super visible, all the media talk about this, it was not just internal. But it went well and it became really powerful. Now, why I'm mentioning that also as an example, no matter it was big and it was a scale. When I realized that through specific stakeholders, I could convince them to do things differently, you know, through that converse those conversations, at that point, the project for me was not really risky because. Mm-hmm. And this is where you know your intuition, your confidence, but also your expertise in the design world in this specific case came into place. I knew the redesigning Pepsi with a new design was not a real risk for any region. I was yeah. not really, you know, there was a perceived risk. But come on, really, people are not going to buy. The new can, because I'm introducing the design that, by the way, is being tested in different markets around the world, is already there. So, what I'm trying to say is there was an example of a good project at the scale, but very moderated risk. The other project that we did was more focused, was initially very focused on the United States and on few customers in food service, and is the design of this. Uh, machines that we call Spire. Essentially, they are fountains, they are dispensers of drinks uh, with a digital screen where you can customize your drink, starting from a base, a soda, a a cola, or a Montaigneur, or or a tea eventually. Uh, And then you can add flavors. And so you could get your customized drink. That was more focused. And... I talk about this also in the book that I recently published in the, in the human side of innovation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Indra back then did something very powerful. Essentially, she isolated a team working just on that. She gave resources to that team and she reinforced those resources so that nobody could touch those resources. And then she organized a steering committee with herself myself, the head of r and the, the CEOs of the businesses involved, and also the head of HR, because she understood that that was also somehow a cultural kind of project. And so she also got personally involved in reviewing the progress of the project. So what happened there is that there was a team that was in charge of making things happen with great sponsorship from the top. And there was also a strong sense of urgency driven by specific customers that we promised this machine to. So this was the perfect condition to create something that at the end we launched and it became very, um, very uh, successful uh, back then for our company. Uh, But it's the opposite case. This time is much more focused on few customers to start with all the variables that are easier to control because you have few people in the team that are the key decision makers and can drive things.
0: It's a very interesting story. I have two questions here, which are very specific to what you mentioned. The first one is that, for example, when I I used to be a senior partner and I would go to a client and say, we got to change the nuclear reactors in this power plant. And I can very easily put together a business case with numbers of why doing it would make sense for the company. And then the CEO could take that to the investment community and say, this is the payback. This is how it's going to impact earnings and so on. But when you're asking PepsiCo and so on to make these changes, with design, the business case is not numbers oriented. So how do you manage that? When you... Because people obviously are used to seeing a business case. But the business case is not a standard business case in the way you're having this discussion. So how do you manage those discussions?
1: That's another great question. First of all, obviously, we always have anyway a business case. Yes. And there is a financial case. And, and we have people that are more, much more skilled than me in creating mm-hmm. those kind of cases. But the truth is that especially when you talk about brand value, and yeah. equity in the long run is almost impossible to really put numbers behind yes. the kind of value you can build over the next five or ten years with, I don't know, the redesign of a brand as an example. And what you see instead very concretely is the cost of something like this. I mean, to change the the brand of a the logo and yeah. the identity of a brand like Pepsi. We talk about hundreds of millions of dollars of investment. The, the investment is major, major, because imagine just about all the assets that we have, all the fleets yeah. and, the, and the vendings and the coolers and God knows, you know, so much, so much. And so uh, here we go, I, I'm gonna use a word that I used earlier, is that idea of confidence is that idea and and, and culture, understanding, you know, the company needs to understand the value of innovation, the value of branding and the value of human centricity. The company needs to understand in their guts, even before them rationally, that their move is the right thing to do. Because if you deeply understand that you need to create value for people, for the human beings, if you understand how the world is moving around you, how it's evolving? Uh, what is happening, you know all around you. By the way, both in your industry, but eventually also outside of your industry, because yeah. you know that disruption may arrive later on to your industry, and you need to decide if you want to be the disruptor, put competition in a, you know, uncomfortable situation, or if you want to be the victim of the disruption, the sooner or later will arrive to your industry. So all of this requires a inner and emotional confidence that is part of the culture of the organization. And that's why when I talk about design, it's not about the project, but it's about a long-term commitment to change that kind of culture. Uh, And look, I'll give you an example that is, much more down to earth and pragmatic and very focused in a specific dimension. It's not, you know, the broader design dimension, it's a specific dimension. There are people that have a very good aesthetic sense and people that have an aesthetic sense that is less developed and yeah. this is true for everybody i mean is the reality is like you know you may be born with a great talent to play tennis or, yes. or play the violin and you may be born eventually with less of the talent even if you have a little bit of talent you know but not you know greatly developed or is is the ability to taste wine and recognize a good wine yeah. from another there are some that are natural and then obviously you need training you know Education and training is very, very important, extremely important. But again, there is people that have that talent, could be partially natural, and then also train because you did this for years, because you're a designer, for instance, and you need to practice that talent. But in general, there's people that are able and people that don't. So if you are, if you belong to the category of people that see a piece of packaging, a visual identity, a new product, and you immediately, intuitively, with your guts, recognize that there is value there, that people will love it. I mean, it's just obvious it's in yeah. front of you. You feel it. You don't think about this. You feel it before realizing it rationally. Then at that point, everything else you're going to do to validate that idea, all the data you're going to gather and the insights and the tests you're going to do, they are all about validating something you already believe in. If instead you are somebody that doesn't recognize, you know, the aesthetic quality of that piece of packaging or that product, but rationally you're thinking, well, yeah, I heard the design actually, you know, brings a lot of value to the table and everybody talks about this. And by the way, I saw the financial results of Apple. So, you know, if you work for Apple, it could work also for my company, but then you don't have that inner confidence when you see that thing. And then here you are and you start to test the idea and you start to get, you know, your consumer research data and they tell you, oh, you shouldn't really do it because people are familiar with a certain thing. And then you start to get from the manufacturing team the cost of that thing. And wow, it's an increased cost. I don't know if the perceived value is really there to justify that increased cost and blah, 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 blah. All of these will just make you really uncomfortable in something you are already uncomfortable with and you're not gonna go with that idea. So in this example that I just shared, is an example of one, the first example, you have the culture in the leader, in the organization, that push, that build in their emotional confidence to try certain things. And then you're gonna collect data to somehow justify that. But those data, the business case, is just there to justify something you already have inside. You already feel that is the right thing to do. This is what usually drives the entrepreneurs of the world: the Steve Jobs and the Richard Branson and Elon Musk of the world. You know that yes. nobody has a business case that is sure that you're going to succeed with Tesla, with the next iPhone, or you know, with the next Virgin venture. Yes. So, and- so the- yeah, no, and, and you've got the point. Yeah, well, uh, just to but close the other important... case, you don't have the culture. And so you you will find all the reasons in the business case not to proceed because you just don't
0: believe Yes, it. but there's an important, important insight in, that you've made here, and I, I want to explain it for the listeners. So when you're speaking to the heads of the different units of PepsiCo and so on, many of them may not understand the concept and the change. They may not see the value, but they are looking at your enthusiasm and energy. And to a large degree, they're betting on you. That you can see this, you have enthusiasm. I don't know if it's gonna work, but I'm gonna trust this man.
1: You know, you say something that is so important and usually people don't talk about too much, but this is the truth. what happened in Silicon Valley, for instance, all the time, right? I mean you bet on that passion, on that energy, on the entrepreneur. And and often it goes well, sometimes it's a disaster. Uh, But but those people are people that some you know those kind of innovators and leaders are people that somehow are able to mobilize armies of other people, investors, and then people that bring in different kinds of expertise. Around an idea and drive that idea forward, and that's why you know I preach and preach the value of the human beings, what I call the unicorns in yeah. my book, and or the subtitle of the book is "People in Love with People," and again those are the what I call the unicorns as well. oh yeah, I love that. That's people, a great phrase. <laughs> those are people that have that kind of passion, that drive to create something extraordinary for other people. They often we call the consumers, the customers, the users, the people out there. And these people in love with people, they are the key ingredients to drive innovation, to drive change, to drive business growth. And we need to be crystal clear about the characteristics of these people, the way of thinking and behaving and, and the skills that they have in general. And too many times instead, when we talk about innovation, we talk about design, we talk about changing ga- the game in a company, we talk about the tools and the processes and yeah. the, way of, the ways of working. We go to agencies out there and we buy processes and tools from them. They tell us, oh, use design thinking in this way, or use this innovation process in this way, organize your company in this way, and you're gonna succeed. And then you look at those projects with those tools in your same company or in multiple different kinds of companies, and some succeed and some fail miserably. And, And then you try to figure out why, and the answer is always the same. It's all about the people you put in those projects yeah. their ability to observe reality in a certain way, to extract the right insights from that, to bring you know those ideas forward, to face all the roadblocks that they face in that journey, to bring other people with them, to change culture while they are changing the products and the brands, yeah. to take the risk, having the courage to, to take certain risks that are also personal risks for people that eventually are not risking just you know their career inside the company, but they're risking, you know, the education of their kids or their next vacations so or a variety of different their ability to buy the next apartment for their families. And that's why. Most of the people, even the most visionary ones, often they're like, you know what? It's not worth to risk in these companies because I can eventually progress inside the ladder of the organization, even if I don't take those kinds of risks. People that are willing to do all of these things that are able to understand reality in the right way, translating it in, in actionable insights, in products and solutions that are meaningful to people, and then take it from idea all the way to market. Uh, there there are not many people out there that are willing and able to do something like this. And by the way, if you are the CEO of a company, if you are leading a team in a company, because of this is also your role, is our role as leaders of these companies to build the right conditions, the right environment for people to be comfortable taking some form of risk. So that they feel that, you know, by doing things differently and taking certain risks, they're not you know, out there in the wind, risking everything, but they yeah. are part of an ecosystem that understand that failures and mistakes are part of the innovation game. I spent 10 years in a tech company in 3 and I met so many scientists there, and I was observing them. And for a scientist, it's pretty obvious that to arrive to one innovation, you need to do thousands and thousands of experiments. What the scientists call experiments, the business world call failures and mistakes. If we want an innovation culture inside our company, we need to start to understand that what we call failures and mistakes are experiments. And therefore, we need to make experiments if we want to arrive to that innovation. And to make the experiments happen, you need a variety of different things. First of all, you need the right financial algorithm and strategy to give space for these experiments to happen. You need to play with your brands in the proper way and engage in a conversation with your uh, users and consumers and customers out there so that they understand that when you fail, you're not doing it randomly, but just because you are innovating and you're trying things. And so in an authentic way, you own that kind of strategy and they will appreciate that kind of effort. You need to do it in a way that if a business leader or a design leader or an R&D leader makes that kind of experiment slash mistake, is not crucified for the mistake yes. and the experiment. But eventually we celebrate, you know, what happened. And you need to do it in a way because now, you know, the idea of making mistakes and celebrating mistakes is becoming trendy, you know, in the literature of business out there in many companies. But, you know, if you just do mistakes, one after the other is a disaster. So you need to have also a system to extract learning out of those mistakes and make sure that if a mistake is made by a business leader, you know, that is working on a brand and then this business leader moves to another mm-hmm. brand, you have a a series of tools to make sure that the next business leaders has all the learning and insights coming from the mistake of the previous one. So, and uh, I just mentioned a few things that you need to do. There are many more to make sure that you build that kind of culture of experimentation, even the vernacular, even the vocabulary, even the way you use words is powerful. The fact that we, you know, calling them experiments instead of mistakes, is 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 great it's very important so how can we shift the mindset of you know the company uh, in, in the right direction even through the words that we use for instance i particularly dislike the word consumer i yeah. never use it unless i need to explain something to people in an accessible way and I don't have the time to really yes. give context. Often you heard me using the word consumer in this podcast, always adding user, customer, and then ending in people. Yes. Because I feel so uncomfortable just to talk about consumers. And why? First of all, because to categorize the people we're serving as consuming being, people consuming, is against What's going on in this society, and what we should do in this society—a society where one of the biggest problems we have is this lack of resources. We need people eventually to consume less, to reuse, to recycle. So the the first idea of looking at people that we serve as consumer is wrong because of that. But there is an even bigger reason, because it, and it is that when you look at people as consumers, session essentially you're looking at people as individuals you want to sell stuff to, individuals that are going to buy your products. If you call them instead users, at least users, you're going to look at them as people that are going to use your products. And therefore you're going to think of them as somebody you want to please creating products that are functional and that are also desirable. Yes. But if you do the step further, and this is what I preach and I want, and, I, and this yeah. is the way we call these people in our company, call them people. Just people, human yes. beings, people. If you look at people as people, and therefore if I look at my, you know, the people I serve, as I look at my daughter Beatrice and my wife Carlotta, my parents, Luisa and Eugenio, my brother Stefano, and maybe I give them also names, Well, if I look at them in this way, then what I want to do, first of all, I'm gonna care about them. You used this word earlier. I use the word a word that is even more powerful, that is love. I love them, you know. And if you love somebody, you try to do magic for them, you know, something that is extraordinary, that is unexpected. You really, really try to do everything you can for them at 360 degrees. Many years ago, it was I think the year two thousand and four. I was at 3M, and that year was the. It was four or five. It was the year of customer satisfaction. The company decided that that year was all gonna be focused on satisfying the customer, and very you know I started to think about the word satisfaction and the word customer. By the way, already back then I was like, no, we should call that customer. But it made sense. The customers for the company in the case where the Walmart of the situation, the Office Depot, the Home Depot, you know, those kind of retailer. But satisfaction, I was thinking satisfaction. And I'm like, okay, you know what? I don't really care about satisfying the customer. What I care about is to love the customer the consumer the people the people yeah and what is the difference between satisfaction and love when you try to satisfy somebody you identify a need that this person has and you try to fulfill the need to to create a solution for the need but when you love somebody and again think about your family as an example you're gonna do more you're gonna do you're gonna go the extra mile, you're gonna do something extraordinary. and you're gonna make sure that it's going to them, that is arriving in the case to market, that you're gonna defeat any kind of roadblock and difficulty because you really love them. you really care about them. you're gonna you're not gonna stop in front of anything. And so this is the mindset and the culture we need to build in these companies today, the culture of love of people. And again, customer satisfaction versus people love. And by the way, you just add the other people, the people yes. the love those people, and you add the unicorns, the leaders, the innovators.
0: I remember speaking to Orecio Pagani once. He makes these three, four, five million dollar supercars. And I was talking to him about the cars he makes. And then he said, we actually don't make cars. We make gifts. Our customers are very successful. They worked hard. They've obviously made lots of sacrifices. They're in the point in their life where they need to be rewarded with a gift. They're not buying a car. We're giving them a gift. And I thought that is a very profound way of thinking about your customers.
1: I, I love, I love, love love it. And you made me, you know, you mentioned... Uh, famous Italian entrepreneur, and then you mentioned a powerful word that he was using to explain the culture of the company. It made me think about another famous Italian entrepreneur and another powerful word um, that that convey a different aspect of what we should do. Yes, The name, the person is Ernesto Gismondi and is the founder of Artemide, the lighting company, you know, premium lighting company, one of the most iconic lighting brands in the planet, you know, for premium. And Ernesto Gisbondi used to say that it doesn't create products for people, it creates proposals. And what he meant was, when I design a product, I don't know if people are really going to love it or not. And I don't want to bother too much with it. You know what? I'm going to create something I really believe in, but I understand it is a proposal. So I'm going to propose it to them. And let's see how they're going to react is essentially a very romantic way and poetic way to convey that idea we're talking about earlier of the experiments, trying things, prototyping new ideas, being okay sometimes with failing. So you, you, you mentioned the idea of gifts, you know, to, to embody this idea of love in everything you do through the products you serve to your, uh, people and and this is another powerful word. Uh, earlier, we were mentioning, you know, people versus consumers. Um, words are really, really important, and they can shape cultures. Uh, I, I I strongly believe in it.
0: Yeah, language matters. The problem when you call people a customer is it creates almost a negative obligation to serve them, because when you say consumer, then it's it's like a fat blob that's just eating and eating. And you've got to find a way to feed this fat blob. Otherwise, it's going to go eat someone else's food. It's hard to see it. But when I was a consultant and I would go around from company to company, you would see the, the culture of a company through the words people used. But then I always tell this to everyone is that if you want to know the culture of a company, look at their incentivization model. Look at how they reward people. They can say anything they want. But if they are paying the salesman for pushing something that nobody wants to buy, that's the true culture of a company. And it's interesting because when we spoke about this, it's very obvious you have a passion for what you do. But more importantly, you definitely care and love people. We never spoke about numbers. And people always think, you know, business is about numbers. No, the numbers is a byproduct out of doing something important that you care about your life's work. I mean, that's what it is, right? If you get up in the morning and you want to do this, that is what you should do. I want to switch gears a little bit. I want to come back to Indra Noyi when she interviewed you. So yeah. I remember once speaking to Johnny Ivan, we were talking about how Steve Jobs introduced the culture of innovation and so on. But in that case, it was driven from the top, from the CEO. Now, in the case of PepsiCo, when Indra was interviewing you, Did she believe uh, design could be done better so she brought you in with a mandate to shake things up? Or was she just looking for a head of design and then you saw opportunities to shake things up?
1: I think it's a mix of the two. As you mentioned, Steve Jobs and Indra, Mentioned this in multiple speeches that we can find also online. Um, she did have a conversation with Steve Jobs, and this Steve Jobs that told Indra that she should focus on design if she was serious about being human centered in everything she yes. was doing. And and so that's when Indra decided to do it. But she was coming from the uh, strategy world, from a world that you know yeah. is not really close to the world of design. Uh, and so what she decided to do was to work with external design agencies. And, and she did some prototypes, some experiments. And then at a certain point, also thanks to another person uh, that became then the president of Global Beverage, his name is Brad Jackman. Brad and Indra meeting, Indra hired bread one year and a half before me, Brent, when, when Indra told her, look, we really need to build designing house. And Indra completely agreed. And so long story short is the two of them, they decided to build, i a designer. They knew that design could have shaken things up. Probably they didn't know exactly how yeah. and with what kind of magnitude. And I don't think they they realize the impact the design was going to have in the company. For instance, in their mind at the beginning, uh, they were going to hire me and hire four or five people at the center as part of these global organizations. And from the center, we would influence the world in the way they were doing design you know, working with all the agencies we're working with around the world. Today we have more than 300 designers. We have 15 different locations around the world. And we started a journey to build all of these right away, right away. I didn't tell her though (laughs) during the interview process for a simple reason. I didn't want to alienate her. I didn't want her to think, well, This guy may be the right fit, but he doesn't really understand, you know, this company and he's thinking too big right now, blah, blah, blah. And so I I took a risk. I took a major risk if you want, but I decided to go in and then convince the organization from within. So long story short, Indra understood that there was a major opportunity for design. She experimented herself first with external firms. Then she realized that she needed to infuse it in, inside the organization. And she's been, since then, always a great sponsor and supporter. And, but following her leadership style, Indra was different than Steve Jobs. And Steve Jobs was running the company as you will run a small enterprise, you know, yeah. you know, you know, and by the way, as a designer himself, so he he worked with Johnny Ive, and it was amazing. But uh, Steve Jobs was also playing the role of the chief design officer of the company yes. somehow, um, and so the most of the times, instead, the CEOs play the role of the CEOs, and then they need eventually chief design officer that are also able to build a business case to make the company understand, you know, that they need to do certain kind of things. In the case was Steve Jobs, it was building the case and was driving things. And then he found in Johnny, I have a phenomenal designer that could create these extraordinary products and experiences. Uh, So Indra, in her own style, she empowered me to do what I was supposed to do, but she also empowered the rest of her teams to push back and, and, and play a role and challenge what I was doing. But she was always there reminding the organization that she was sponsoring design. I give you an example that she mentioned very often. She would organize once a year a dinner with all the designers, uh, and design was the only function She was organizing these dinners with. And the goal was, and she said it multiple times in multiple situations, that she wanted to let everybody in the company know that she was a sponsor of design, that she was behind this initiative. But she also didn't want to alienate everybody else, you know, by pushing too much top-down. There was no other leadership style. So it was always a right balance between bottom-up push and then top-down together. She always balanced the two dimensions uh, very carefully. And this was great because that built an organization that was very, and it is still today, very solid. So that when she left the company in 2008, design was not Indra Nui's little toy or project. Design was owned by the entire company, was part of the company. And when Ramon LaGuarta took the helm of the company in 2018, he doubled down in design. And essentially, you know, since Ramon took the position, we doubled the number of designers around the world. And we doubled down on sustainability and innovation. So that was because from the very beginning, both in there and even myself, because I was coming from 10 years of doing exactly the same thing in 3M, we all realized that it was very important to disconnect the function from specific leaders, including the CEO yes. or including the CDO, the chief design officer, myself, meaning that obviously, you know, these leaders play a very important role and they are the driver of the creation of the culture and everything. But this organization needed to be to make sense for the company even if those two individuals and other sponsor of the company wouldn't be there anymore and 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 that's why once again you know we had CEOs and CMOs and and the CFOs and different kind of leaders inside the company step by step owning this more and more and more and so again when Indra left the machine was gone and the and we were accumulating proof points. And it was just, you know, this exponential growth of the organization was driven by the number of proof points that made the case very clear. So we moved from the occasional leap of faith to quest for confidence. And by a CEO that had the confidence, the courage, the vision of not destroying something that the previous CEO did, but the opposite, seeing the value and doubling down in his own way, with his own kind of vision. And I think it's beautiful, you know, in the book uh, that I wrote, the two forward are from Idranui and Ramon Laguarta, from the two CEOs that. that somehow are sponsoring this initiative in two different phases of life, of this journey of design inside the organization. And it's beautiful that two CEOs together decide to get together and write a forward for a book about innovation and design inside this organization, uh, I don't think is that common.
0: No, it's very uncommon. I've never seen that because it shows continuity of thinking, which is very rare among CEOs because normally when a new CEO comes in, they try to blame the previous CEO, for why they're making changes. You, you said something and you pointed out a chronology of events that's very important that I want to highlight for the audience. You mentioned that uh, Indra, when she was working on design previously, she had outsourced some of it. She had other companies work on it. So she, she initially spoke to Steve Jobs, realized design is important, worked with some outside companies, and then realized she has to bring this in-house, Which is a, this is a very important point, which I want to talk to because if something is going to be your competitive advantage, you can't outsource it. It has to be done inside. You have to make it part of your DNA. And I see so many companies today, they'll say something is central to their survival, but they don't build first the capability and second the philosophy in house. Because the philosophy you brought to PepsiCo is not something that you can necessarily get through a contractor.
1: I completely, completely agree. I think the reason why many companies decide first to go with external uh, agencies is that they are experimenting, they're prototyping. They don't really probably believe in it, but somehow they're thinking, well, I see you know value, so let's try externally. The risk, though, and then you already you know mention and hint to in your question, is that if you don't infuse that new approach within the culture of the company, yeah. it may fail not because the approach is wrong, but because mm-hmm. you are not infusing in the culture of the company. But but in the meantime, these CEOs they are bombarded with all kinds of new opportunities. People that go to them and tell them, you know, you should invest in this and then in this and then (laughs) in that in all kinds of fields. And so it must be so difficult for them to decide on what to invest in-house, escape right away. What else is that to, you know, experiment with? And so the value of working with external firms and try to experiment is that at least you get a flavor of what you're talking about. You get one layer below what C jobs may have told you in a conversation one day, right? At least you try, You, 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 you see what really this design thing is about by being personally involved in a connection with a firm. It's important though, to be aware that that initiative, that prototype could fail because you're not building it within the organization. So if you're doing it mostly because you want to better understand what that idea is about, then maybe that's a safe way to do it if you have multiple bets to place yeah. and you like need to prioritize by definition. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's not an ideal experiment but it gives you some insights but yes. you need to be aware of the limitation of that experiment so that you don't blame everything you know the the full capability if things don't work uh, because one of the reasons is that you didn't embed it inside the organization
0: yeah that's well so it's the same reason companies do joint ventures right they don't want exactly. to fully commit to something. They want to test it out, see what the partner can do, what's their capabilities. It it spreads the risk. Moro, thank you so much for that podcast. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's such an amazing philosophy you have about the way you approach the world. And I love talking to people who love their work and don't call it work. Because I'm the same way. I don't like when people say, what do you do for a living? What is your work? I say, I don't work. I just do this because I like to do it, right? I mean, what could be better than getting up in the morning and doing what you love to do?
1: I agree completely. So that's my wish to every single person listening to us today. I wish you that when you get up in the morning and you look at yourself in the mirror, you think, wow, I love what I'm doing. And I wish that if you don't, you find the courage and also eventually the opportunity because I understand that sometimes it's not that easy. To make that change and find what you really love. Because at the end of the day, that's the meaning of life, right? To be happy and love what you the way you're spending this journey on planet Earth. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful also for me.
0: Well, I actually enjoyed reading your book, and it's one of the books we'll recommend this year for our listeners. I thought it is really nice because it's not about business, it's not really about design, it's about finding your passion and riding that wave. And I think it's so rare. When people talk about that today. Today, it's all about numbers. And I always tell people, the numbers will balance if you find your passion. Thank, thank you, Moro. I hope to have you back. Hope a, have a good day. Thank you. Thank you. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing,